Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another incredible and informative episode for you guys, so hopefully you enjoy. And today's big topic that we're going to first start off with is the regime apparently losing its legitimacy. We keep seeing this take all the time from the right. Everyone's always talking about, oh, the regime, it's really in a weak state. That's is why it's arresting all its enemies and uh, various other things it's doing. It's very weak. It's losing its legitimacy among the people, and we have to be aware of that. So we're going to be addressing that, and we're going to be tying that into some other issues that have been dealing with the regime, namely what this uh, new gun law that they're trying to implement in New Mexico, how that deals with that, how the Second Amendment deals with that, uh, what actually keeps the country united, and other matters that we'll go into. So we'll first begin with this art argument that I keep seeing. Generally, this argument is used for two in two ways, and it's actually best if you want some summer if you want a decent summary of this argument. Uh, Ron Unz had an article over at the Unz Review, of course, last week about the regime losing its legitimacy, and his basic argument is that you know it's losing legitimacy domestically by the severe oppression and persecution it's doing against Trump supporters and other types of dissidents, and he pinpointed to what's happening with these J6 prosecutions, with the long prison terms that were handed down to these Proud Boys convicted of seditious conspiracy, and um, also seditious conspiracy charges have been handed to some Oath Keepers. A lot of these, and the, the dates are the sentence length of these prisons, or prison sentences, go up from 10 to 22 years. Uh, Enrique Terrio wasn't even at the Capitol, got 22 years in prison. And, you know, some people, and even Stuart Rhodes, who is head of the Oath Keepers, he got 18 years, and they're actually appealing that because they think it's too short, that they want him to spend more time in jail. They want him to have at least 25 years in jail. And people thought that Stuart Rhodes was a Fed. Uh, I don't think he uh, they would be sentencing a Fed to us. I forget if it's 17 or 18 years, but we'll say 18 years in jail. And they're wanting to give him 25. They think it's too lenient. And I don't think that they would do that to a federal informant. And Stuart Rhodes didn't enter the Capitol either. Uh, he was there um, on the Capitol property on J6, but he did not enter the Capitol. And Enrique Terrio wasn't even in the city because he's barred from... I know he's barred. He was, he, you know, he had some criminal uh, proceedings going on. And he was basically barred from the city uh, from being there on January 6th. So he wasn't even there. But they claimed that he planned with his lieutenants to storm the Capitol. And he was, of course, the head of the Proud Boys. So people see, so they see this and they're like, oh, this is definitely losing the regime's legitimacy because they're being, they're not respecting the law. They're going above and beyond the law to punish their political enemies. And the entire country can see this. And then, you know, uns, and this is a common argument too, is that the regime is losing legitimacy on the world stage because of Ukraine. They, a lot of people like to claim that the war in Ukraine is being a massive loss for America and the American empire. And that all their countries of the world are turning on America and BRICS is getting stronger and the third world is deciding to dispense with America and not listen to it and the Ukraine war is going to turn into a massive defeat for America and thus it's losing legitimacy on the world stage. And so those are the two things. It's that it's losing legitimacy on domestically through 
you know, political prosecutions and policies that it's pursuing. And this can relate to anything from not providing proper law and order and proper uh, protecting the public safety to the fact that it's, you know, going after Trump. Uh, going after Trump was also part of Ron Anza's argument and what Fulton County and Jack Smith are doing against Trump and also all the J6 prosecutions, along with what's happening foreign policy-wise. And on and his estimation, he saw the American government as basically what the Soviet Union was like in the first half of the 80s, is that it was run by these geriatric old men who are not capable of leading a country. And he points out the age of Biden, the age of Mitch McConnell, the age of Trump, uh, Nancy Pelosi, I don't, I forget if he brings up Nancy Pelosi, but he was definitely bringing up all three of them, and he was pointing out the health problems of McConnell and Biden and how they seem incapable of forming sentences. You know, and there's been uh, McConnell keeps having these brain freezes where he just like can't speak and he just stands there like a statue, and they have to haul him off off the uh, podium. And this has happened twice, and he had a concussion earlier this year and that's what's causing it and he's also 81 years old uh not a good combination and so that's what we're seeing now with our government it's run by these geriatrics who are even older than the geriatrics who are running the late soviet empire where then those guys you know brezhnev cherninko and andropov were not even were under 75 when they died I don't even think I don't I think Antropov wasn't even on what didn't even hit 70 before he died. And I think Brezhnev was just at around 75. And so these guys, when they died, would have been much younger than our current leadership are uh, at least younger by a few years. So he's like comparing us that were run by these old geriatrics who are incapable of running the government. And they're seeing the disasters that are playing out. And Anz is saying that. You know, America's old leadership is even trying to provoke, uh, you know, possibly World War Three with what's going on in Ukraine and taking on Russia and China at the same time and provoking China and Taiwan and other and other areas near their sphere. And this is even worse than the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was just kind of uh, slouching towards collapse while America leadership is apparently accelerating towards collapse. And he's. You know, very certain that we're face, we're in a Soviet Union, a late Soviet Union-like situation, both foreign, 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 globally and domestically. I'll address the global question of that it's losing its legitimacy first. First off, America has gained probably. You know, there are risks from the Ukraine war. World War Three is not one of them. Uh, Russia has made clear that it's not trying to escalate this. It's always like a fear. It's like, oh, we could be in a nuclear war. We could do this. It's like, you know, Russia is going to do this. Russia it doesn't want to escalate. They've made it very clear that they want to restrain themselves from escalating. And even if they they found plenty of evidence of NATO involvement and American involvement in Ukraine, and they just don't want to respond to it because they know that that would be bad for them. So the risk of like a expanded war or a hot war that you know, like Tucker Carlson was promising we'll be in a hot war with Russia. Uh, that's just not going to happen. First off, America knows that the way it's been able to keep the Ukraine war going is that we don't have real American troops on the ground, boots on the ground. I mean, we do have CIA agents and special forces operators there, but we don't have like 
you know, national the the type of units that we were sending over to Iraq and Afghanistan there. And as long as we keep like those forces out of Ukraine, we can keep pumping money into it because the Ukraine war is a perfect war for the American foreign policy establishment. It's a war where we allow other people to fight and die for our interests and our people besides like some special forces operators and CIA guys stay out of it. And there's been a few casual and, you know, the idiots who want to volunteer for <laughs> Ukraine's militias and get blown up by Russian artillery. You know, those those are basically the only people they have to worry about. They don't want boots on the ground. And that's and if there was a potential that we would be in a hot war with Russia, America would back down from it because it would be overwhelmingly unpopular. They don't want a hot war with Russia because they first off, they they're already having recruitment problems and peacetime with our military. They're not they don't have the number of troops to fight that type of war. They're not going to institute a draft. That would be incredibly unpopular. They can't they can't do these things and they don't want to. They prefer to have a war where Ukrainians fight and die for America's interests and we just pay the bill. It's much more politically um, appropriate or politically popular for America to do this. It's it's much politically easier for them to do this. So there's no chance of a hot war. And at the same time that there have been some problems with the Ukraine war because, you know, some countries like Saudi Arabia and India have, you know, done their own thing on the war and not gone with America, what we've wanted them to do in response to Russia. You know, we've wanted the entire world to sanction Russia. and We really have only gotten West Europe and Japan and South Korea to follow along with this. Uh, the rest of the world hasn't really gone along with their sanctions. But that's like a benefit because we've had to, we have imposed our will much more on Europe and we've severed ties between Europe and Russia over this war, which is important. And we're making Europe far more dependent on us economically, politically, and militarily. The fact that Every European country is now begging for more NATO involvement. You know, Poland wants more American troops there. The Baltic states want American troops there. They want to expand, you know, to the NATO to Sweden and Finland. And Finland has already been welcomed into NATO and we're just waiting on Sweden over its dispute with Turkey. So, you know, you've had NATO expansion uh, and Ukraine, of course, wants to join NATO and Ukraine is permanently separated, or at least half of it, probably, and probably by the end of the war, most of Ukraine will be permanently separated from Russia and outside of Russia's sphere. And we view that as weakening Russia's influence over the world and their strength in the world. And the war has shown Russia is not quite the military power we thought it was. You know, it, it's not a weak military power, but it doesn't really have the ability to fully defeat Ukraine in battle, or at least how they intended it. It's really the war is a stalemate. Uh, I always want to speak more like, oh, you say Russia's losing or Ukraine is winning. It's like, that's not what I'm arguing, is that Russia is, or Russia and Ukraine are at a stalemate. And Russia probably has the military advantage in that they can still gain some territory, while Ukraine, as shown by their failed offenses over the summer, can't really gain any territory. Russia can still gain a little bit. You know, they're not going to take Kiev. They're not going to, you know, displace the regime. They can still conquer the rest of the Donbass and maybe take over the rest of the territories that they've claimed that they annexed. Uh, but that's probably about it. 
And maybe that's a victory. I mean, that is gaining something, but was that worth the cost of the war? That remains to be determined. So you give it a stalemate with a slight Russian edge is what I would say that the war is at. And Ukraine is never going to kick Russia out while there's a pretty good chance that Russia will at least gain more territory that they, you know, whatever happens in a future peace deal, that that territory will be recognized as Russia. But that only really matters to Ukraine and Ukrainian nationalists who really want every every speck of Ukrainian territory pre-2014 to be claimed by Ukraine. America, you know, if that means that Russia is cut off from Europe and, you know, there is the problem of Russia becoming a junior partner with China and becoming closer to China. But if it's shown as like a weak country that's going to be extremely dependent on China, that's not quite the win for Russia. It's not what really Russia wanted. You know, Russia still wants closer ties to Europe and to have a powerful influence over Europe and, you know, Probably for the immediate future after the war, that's no longer to be the case. I mean, their main link to Europe was Nord Stream pipelines. And those got blown up without Europe even really complaining about it. And that's a big part of their energy supply. But Europe just took it. I mean, and Europe just keeps taking things that we demand that they take. And they're making significant economic sacrifices to benefit America, which is a, is a win for America now, it, for the American empire. Got to differentiate or for the regime, as we are calling it in this episode. Um, And so that like is what's happening with foreign policy wise and globally. Now, the Ukraine conflict could turn against America's interests. Now, if we had a peace deal somewhat in the near future without any radical changes, America would probably have the the, for its interests would have the WB cut on based on what's happening in Europe. Ukraine is now a permanent buffer state against Russia, and it's closer to the West. It's our little playground to do whatever we want. Europe is more dependent on America in all aspects. NATO has been expanded. Russia is exposed as a weaker actor, and it's cut off from Europe. And those are benefits to us. Now, there could be other things where, you know, outside the West, that there's more skepticism of America and, and maybe less willingness to go along with some of our objectives and what we are, let's differentiate, the empire wants and the empire's objectives. But overall, if you look at the war, they would say that they got what they wanted out of it. And Russia could actually gain a small victory too. Now, there are things that could go wrong. Maybe Europe decides that it's tired of playing America's game and decides to open up ties with Russia again. That would be a huge loss. Uh, Let's say that maybe China intervenes and negotiates a peace deal. That would be a major, major loss for America if China is seen as the arbiter and the the one that guarantees world peace and is negotiating these uh, hostilities between various states. That would be a big problem. And they, they were able to do that earlier this year with Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, helping to soothe ties between these two hostile states and get them working together. And even now, you know, Iran wants to join BRICS, which and Iran and Saudi Arabia both want to join BRICS. Uh, So maybe that will lead to closer ties between these countries. I mean, BRICS, I don't think all the countries get along because obviously India and China hate each other and they are the I and C in BRICS. But, you know, it does indicate something if they would both join that economic block. 
So there are still problems that could arise from the Ukraine war that maybe the globalist American empire didn't envision. But for so far, those haven't happened. I mean, they're still possible. So I don't really think that you can bank on losing legitimacy in that. There are problems with going on with Saudi Arabia having a more independent path from America, you know, and them just basically telling Biden a lot of times to fuck off and having closer ties with China. And so is a lot of other states that we've been depending on uh, doing their own thing and having closer ties to China and opening up. But we've also, at the same time, we've been trying to make Europe cut off ties to China, which we've had some success because it, it, Italy left the Silk Road Initiative, which and Maloney is trying to make you know Italy the most loyal country to the gay in Europe. And so is a lot of other European countries trying to decouple themselves from Chinese influence, a lot of the Eastern European countries especially, with the exception, notable exception of Hungary. So these things are still in play, but I don't know if you're uh, if it's quite losing legitimacy yet. And also, I think the bigger problem with on the foreign stage of being celebrating like America losing legitimacy is that BRICS and the type of third world coalition led by China isn't really for our interests. Like, I'm not quite sure what happens. It's like BRICS becomes powerful and then right wing anon somehow take over the American government. It's like, I don't think that happens. <laughs> it really just means that America is going to be weaker and poorer on the world stage while it's still going to remain the same country domestically. I don't see any like dramatic change. It's not like, oh, Brazil is telling America to fuck off along with South Africa and they've cut off economic ties. Suddenly America becomes based again. Uh, first off, BRICS, uh, you know, these countries are really not our friends. You could maybe say like Russia, you know, it's a majority white nation. It does some interesting things. But let's look at the other countries a part of BRICS. Brazil, India, China, and South Africa are all explicitly anti-white governments. I mean, Brazil now has an explicitly anti-white government with Lula that they're destroying their European heritage and demonizing the European settlers that came there and they're having affirmative action on steroids in the government. That's there. India's like whole founding myth is being an anti-colonial state and seeing Europeans as so bad and then promoting these junk science theories claiming that the Indo-Aryans or Indo-Europeans were native to India. They didn't come from elsewhere and there's something different from them. Uh, and that Indo-European countries spread from India, which is not what happened at all with the Indo-European um, origins. So they're anti-white. China uh, always likes to uh, criticize the whites and, and colonialism. You could say that they're maybe less anti-white than the average university professor in America, but they're not like a country that wants to help out whites. And then South Africa, need I explain South Africa? <laughs> so, and a lot of these states they want to add to BRICS are just like these shithole African and Latin American countries like Venezuela and, um, you know, I think even Nigeria and some of these other countries that want to be added to it. And it's like, these are really our friends. It's like Saudi Arabia is not really our friend. Iran isn't really our friend. So it's not like these countries are going to come out and like help like the European and, and American and and historic American nation. They're not going to do that. They're wanting to just see us poor and weak. They don't really care who's in power. And that's not really an appealing prospect to it. So I'm always skeptical of this, like, oh, BRICS is powerful, thus the empire is weakened. 
and nothing happens domestically that could you know change things in our direction but this will just suddenly lead to right-wing anons on twitter taking power and turning america into the base state i don't really see that so i'm always very skeptical of people who like celebrate anything like setback that happens with america worldwide and i kind of was into this too because uh for a long time we thought that like okay if america has setbacks then we will you know there will be better things for us domestically but we really haven't seen that uh, you know people were like oh with the afghanistan withdrawal this is going to be a huge huge thing for right wingers domestically uh was well, not a huge thing for right wingers domestically uh, you know even if it was the right thing to do and i think it was the right thing to do to withdraw it really didn't have any impact on our domestic situation which is really what our core focus is so i don't think uh you know as long as the nation remains the same domestically and you know same people are in power and other things and maybe you could say that they get displaced in uh you know a situation where america's seen on the world stage but we really haven't seen that yet and i am skeptical of that happening and i really don't like placing our faith in, in brazil india china and south africa to save us uh, and even russia too you know all these countries I, I don't really like placing our faith in the third world to save us i'm not even quite sure what that would mean uh too with us saving us but people just i think that's people become so black about the domestic situation that they just see some outside force saving us and they see these guys, like, even though they're openly anti-white, the fact that they're rejecting uh, American global dominance and they'll snub their noses at it, they'll be like, okay, these guys are based. They're awesome. We love them. And they're going to save us. And they're on our side when they're not on our side at all. That doesn't mean the empire is on our side. The regime is. But I, it's just something to put in perspective is like, don't put your faith and your hope in bricks to save us. Now it comes the time to the, the the domestic side. And I don't think that's like the less like thing. Like I think on the global stage, you can make an argument. I think it's a reasonable argument to say there are issues. I think that I'm more of the opinion of when it's like turbo America versus collapsing America. I'm more on the side with turbo America when it comes to uh, foreign policy. But I do think that there's legitimate arguments for collapsing America. I just think that the main problem with that is the, that doesn't really benefit us. It's just like uh, people are celebrating like, woo, we're going to be poorer, weaker, and at the at the mercy of China. This is going to be awesome. And uh, I don't really see that. It's also like, why are people celebrating like us entering Soviet Union collapse? It's like, look at what happened in 90s Russia. It was terrible. It's like, wow, we can't wait to lose all our savings, have crime quadruple, and have no authority whatsoever and just be all corrupt like mafia like like randomly murdering people and oppressing us and we're at the mercy of foreign uh, actors who will just gobble up our whole our country's resources and economy uh that's not really uh like an appealing vision <laughs> maybe you get putin out of that but even like putin has his like shortfalls and shortcomings and i don't think that Putin really uh, compensates for 1990s Russia. So I'm not very sure. Like, people always imagine, like, oh, if we undergo a USSR-style collapse, uh, then we'll be a base country. And it's like, no, you can look at 1990s Russia to see what happens, and it's not a really appealing prospect. And we're a different country, too. 
And I, one thing about, and I always say this about the USSR thing, is like they had these component parts of the USSR that had strongly defined identities outside the Soviet Union. And they thought themselves as being forced into this government, which that's not really the case with America. I mean, outside of Hawaii, which the native Hawaiians, which those aren't really our people, our people were having things. You know, most Americans don't see themselves as like forced into this American Union or having an identity separate from America. Outside of these autistic Internet identities, most people really don't have one. You could say with the Southerners, but Southern identity is uh, that's separate and distinct from regular American identity has been in decline since the 60s. You can go you drive around. I drive around the South all the time and you see fewer Confederate flags out in public than you did when I was driving around with my family as a kid 20 years ago. I'd see Confederate flags all the time. Uh, now you see a lot fewer Confederate flags. There was all these landmarks on the interstate that I saw you know, driving like 81, uh, you know, sometimes 95 going south. And I would always remember there'd be a giant Confederate flag in certain locations. A lot of those places, they're no longer there. Uh, so that's just indicating that, you know, there's not like unlike the Soviet Union where, you know, the Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Georgians, Armenians, uh, Azeris, like Kazakhs, Uzbeks, all these people had different identities separate from the Soviet Union. And they even especially with the Baltic states, they had a memory of being independent from Russia and Soviet Union that they were able to separate themselves. Uh, you don't really have that case here. You know, people don't have the same type of loyalty to Florida as they do to, uh, as Estonians have for Estonia. And that's just something to keep in mind. But going to this domestic situation, it's really more like the regime strengthening itself than weak and then being a weak party or uh, not lacking legitimacy. Because you have to look, if this stuff was seriously threatening the regime, you would be seeing like mass protests all the time or resistance to a lot of these federal over overreaches. And you can see that with January 6th, like the way January 6th, what's happening to January 6th protesters on Twitter, on right wing Twitter, is that this is and I agree with this. This is an outrage that people are outraged. They're fed up. They're seeing what the federal government is doing and they want to resist the federal government. They want to tell the federal government to fuck off. They want to defy the federal government when they see this stuff. But in reality, is this view shared by the majority of Americans? Absolutely not. If you look at polling on, on January 6th and what people think of it, the majority of people disapprove of what the J6ers did, even among Republicans. It's over 50% of Republicans disapprove of what the J6ers did, even though 54% of, uh, of Republicans view it as a legitimate protest they still view what their actions did was wrong, that they view that they shouldn't have gone in the Capitol, uh, they shouldn't have fought with police, and there's very little support for the guys who fought for poli with police among Republicans. And among Democrats and independents, it's like overwhelming majority that disapproves it and so sees it as an illegal act. Like even the act of the protest itself was illegal or nefarious. And that's what's shared by the majority of people. Now, among right-wing Twitter, there's, you know, a lot of sympathy for these guys and a lot of support for them. But outside of even right-wing Twitter, there's not even much support for them among, you know, ordinary Republicans. You know, there will be like, well, I think they're giving too long of sentences, but I just don't really care about it. Or they view you know, these guys like, well, fighting police is bad and they should have followed the law. And I think they're getting overcharged, but 
I don't really agree, but this isn't one of my main concerns. And I know this is like even generated among conservative media is that a reason why Fox News, well, post-Tucker departure, doesn't focus on J6ers at all is because a large part, the audience doesn't care about it. It's like I talked to people who worked for Tucker and while Patriot Purge, which was their Fox Nation documentary, was popular because it appealed to a you know strong segment of conservative media consumers, the ones that are very online, the ones that are consuming like Breitbart and reading like those types of sites every day, and it really appealed to them to sign up for Fox Nation. You know, among the ordinary Fox News viewers, it's not a hit. And any time that they talked about J6, it was some of the lowest rated segments that they had. Uh, so there is not that general interest in it uh, among the even among ordinary Republicans and conservatives outside of people who are very online. And these people already have problems with the regime. And everyone's like, we need to wake these people up. And I always argue majority of these people think that or at least a sizable number think that the, we're led by satanic pedophiles and that these people are absolute evil and controlled by demons. I don't think you need to wake these people up that there's something wrong with our government. I just think that they don't really have much power and there's not enough of them. And really the type of showing the lack of legitimacy for the regime uh, doesn't translate to anything into really direct life or it's mainly that they'll tweet about it online. But, you know, if a cop comes over to them, they're going to respect his authority. Uh, you know, the, if they're hauled in for jury duty, they're going to answer the summons. You know, they're going to pay their taxes, all these things that they should do. I'm not suggesting <laughs> not doing these things, but I think those are like the small things that you could say that people are defying the legitimacy of the regime would be like not paying your taxes. And if there was like all these people were like, we're not going to pay our taxes over January 6th, then I would say that the and, you know, various state governors were saying like, we're going to defend these people from IRS arrest because we feel the federal government is losing its legitimacy for arresting these J6s. That would be a real problem for the regime's legitimacy. But we're not seeing that. And we're not even seeing anything close to that. We're just seeing people complain about it on Twitter, which is one thing. Uh, I think that's something in the right direction. But I think people always overestimate. Uh, or they create this straw man of what conservatives were like pre-Trump. And they say that all these people loved every single like official and authority figure and that they never had any questions about the regime and the government. And it's like, you know, the Tea Party was based around this idea that Barack Obama was some foreign interloper controlled by some malignant influence, outside influence, and that the government ha of the, that they imagined that they grew up with had been replaced by something else. And Trump was able to translate that into an identity issues framework, which was uh, very key. Uh, and at the time, they tried to translate this into like, yeah, it got translated into outside influence of teachers unions. Actually, teachers unions are terrible, but you know, maybe there's something else wrong. Or they're like, it got translated into outside influence of the high tax lobby or something. And that's what they are. Or Iran, that's always my favorite, that Iran took over a government. And so those are the things that the Tea Party, uh, tra a lot of their anger was transferred into. But you know, those people had significant problems with government. They were not, they didn't have these type of illusions that I think we strawman a lot of conservatives are. And then they're like, we're creating positive influence. Now this entire, like our entire, you know, main demographic thinks that the government is controlled by satanic pedophiles and they, they don't recognize its legitimacy. And it's like, okay, they may tweet about this online, but what does that mean in real life?
doesn't really mean anything. Um, a great example of this is always shown when, and this kind of ties into the gun rights uh, issue that I'm going to address in a moment. But there was this bar that was forced, the, you know, police were like saying, you can't stay open for COVID lockdowns. And there's a couple cases where this, and then a bunch of boomers, they're really actually more Gen Xers. It's wrong to call these guys boomers because if they're like their 40s and 50s, they're, they're Gen Xers. And even that was the case in 2000 or 2020, <laughs> not 2000. That's all. 40s and 50s, they would have been in there. They would have been boomers. But uh, in 2020, and the police showed up. And even though these guys had more firepower, you know, they had AR-15s. They were, you know, they had rifles and stuff. And the police just had handguns. The police just pointed their guns at them. They're like, uh, you know, freeze. And all these guys with firepower, a lot of firepower on them, held up their hands and surrendered which shows that these guys still show a lot of legitimacy or degree of respect for the regime. And it's also one thing, you know, if you thought that that the regime propagandists were true, that the people that they're arresting for J6 are these dangerous terrorists and they're ready to fight the government tooth and nail, and even some people on the right-wing Twitter sphere argue that too, you would think that there had been some, like, violent, interactions with these arrests but there's not been a single violent interaction with these arrests which is a good thing i i, I think it that would make the that would be terrible if that happened because that would feed you know left-wing conspiracy theories that there is this major right-wing extremist threat and we have to do more they would just be arresting people left and right if just some idiot decided to open fire on police who's getting arrested and so i think it's like a good thing but if you thought that these guys were ready for revolution, ready for guerrilla war, ready to, you know, defy federal authority, you would think that at least one guy would have, you know, had like had a standoff with police, maybe not fired at him, but, you know, they had to negotiate a surrender because they're afraid to go in. Um, but that hasn't happened in any case. Generally, they've done this to a lot of these like early morning raids where this guy's asleep and they've ensured that that never even happened. But, you know, they've arrested nearly 1,200 people at this moment, and they haven't had any type of disturbance in, in that. They haven't had any type of resistance. Or even if you, you know, take it away from the individual, if you thought that, you know, and a lot of these guys are very rural, deep red Trump areas, you would think that, you know, maybe the sheriff's office would come out and, you know, stop uh, the FBI coming in or not allow them to have jurisdiction over the area. That's never happened. So you don't really see, I don't know where the regime is quite losing its legitimacy uh, outside of the conservative media consumer demographic, which has always had its issues with the federal government. I mean, for the longest time, like conservatives have thought the federal government is the enemy. You know, go back to, you know, my podcast I did on the John Birch Society. It wasn't like these guys thought the federal government was good and trustful and they should follow every order. No, they thought they were doing up, they were up to no good. And this has been the case for years and years and years. Um, but whether that translates into something like real and direct, you know, I don't, I haven't seen evidence of that. And that would be a case of the regime losing its legitimacy if this was a viewpoint shared by the vast majority of Republicans and that various state officials were then starting to defy the federal government, which there's been cases of that, I think, with the COVID lockdowns, you know, and COVID measures, you know, there was a degree of state and local jurisdictions not following along. But, uh, you know, that's just the one case. It has nothing to do with what happened 
with these J6ers are with Trump. And even going with Trump, you know, this is the most popular political figure in the country, or he has the most devoted fan base of any political figure in recent American history. I mean, you'd have to probably go to FTR to find someone with a more fervent uh, following and, and devoted following. Maybe Reagan, you could say. And uh, Obama, maybe. But you, you get my point for right now. And, you know, when he got arrested, you know, they were all worried they're going to have J6s all across the country. And, you know, there wasn't even really any protests. There were some small protests. You know, I'm not discounting these guys who try to do protests outside of the Fulton County Jail or D.C. But, you know, those weren't really sending a much of a message. And the message it was saying is like they don't have to worry about, you know, indicting and convicting the president, sending him to jail. Because they don't have to worry about mass protests at all. All they're going to have is like these scattered demonstrations of, you know, maybe 100 people. So they don't really have to worry about that. And they don't have to worry about, you know, a governor or state governor like DeSantis or maybe he fled to another red state like South Dakota of denying the federal government jurisdiction to arrest the president and like offering safe harbor for him. You know, they don't have to worry about that. They're able to do this. So it's really more strengthening the regime's power. Maybe there's more people upset with it than uh, what the regime and federal government are doing than 10 years ago. But what does that translate to? And that's what's important to consider. So this is not like, I always, I'm not trying to blackmail people, but I'm just trying to people get realistic about what's happening. And some people are like, oh, you know, the fact that they're arresting the president, this could be a catalyst for civil war, national wars, and it's not really a catalyst for anything <laughs> except for just being blackmailed about what our federal government's doing. But the federal government that views January 6th and Trump's actions, they view that as like a direct threat to democracy. And by democracy, they mean the rule, their rule by themselves. And they feel that, you know, this would totally destroy the American system as is and like the global empire as it is. And they have to do extreme measures to prevent that. And that's a very disturbing sight, but they're able to get do it and get along with it with the, I don't want to say the ascent of the American people, but the shrugging of the American people. I think that's really the reaction. There's much more concern over Trump's arrest and possible conviction than there is for the J6ers. But at the same time, I'm not sure what that would translate into, into direct action. I think and some people are like, Oh, the the scales can be cast away from people's eyes. Like the all that will be gone. Like people will see the truth. And it's like, well, what that what will that mean? <laughs> I, I'm not sure what that will mean. I think these people are already, you know, um, woken up or red pilled enough about. They may be even too red pilled about the federal government regime, but it doesn't really translate into anything. At the end of the day, as long as they're paying their taxes, following laws, and and respecting the officials and a lot of conservatives, even this is it doesn't really quite work for conservatives uh, of this. Uh, I guess you could call it a revolutionary mindset or, or rebel mindset, maybe, is that conservatives, like even with their most extreme attitudes or stuff, they still ultimately, for the most part, respect authority and, and have deference for authority. A lot of like lawyers point this out that they say that the people they want on juries are conservative leaning people because they're more willing to defer to what the judge and prosecutor are telling them. Like, oh, these are authority figures. They're telling me this guy is guilty. Well, I'm going to side with them. Uh, that doesn't play out. Uh, that doesn't really go. <laughs> Conservatives have to see 
you know, conservatives on the on trial. But and even then, like conservatives don't like people who are lawbreakers or are not following the law or the law deems um, outside the law or illegal. They still like they do have questionable support for it. And they really have this uncomfortable feeling. They don't know how to reconcile that with their instinctual def- deference and respect for authority. And that's why it's like, you know, conservatives love the military. They love the police. They, you know, they are typically law abiding. They love saying law abiding citizens. They love, you know, they're the people that will always pay taxes and all these things. And generally, they're the rule followers. And that's a large part of what makes them conservative. And it's very difficult to tell the people who are instinctually rule followers and and defer to authority, whether it's the authority of tradition or the officials that they're deferring authority to, it's very hard to get them to have this uh, revolutionary mindset that all these things are bad and now they need to defy that because that goes against their instinct. That goes against what their um, temperament is. So that's something that we have a difficulty with. But so all this is not to say it's all hopeless or what have you. I just think that uh, people need to be uh, a little less um, um, worrying about uh, are, are claiming that something big is going to happen, that all these American people are waking up and they're ready to just topple the federal government like what's happened and V for Vendetta. You know, I always use that scene in V for Vendetta. I always bring it up on my podcast because it's such a stupid scene. There's just like one day all these guys are living in prosperity. They have, you know, flat screen TVs. You know, this is like the movies made in the mid 2000s. So technology is a little bit different but they have like a nice uh house they have a nice tv they have family they're dressed nice they look like they have all the food and and nourishment that they need and yet someday they just see something on tv and they all gather out in the street and defy the government that's never fucking happened before in in world history it's always people who feel you know there's some type of oppression there's a lot of grinding poverty you know there's maybe a food shortage of some sort and they really feel that these and the people turn against the government because they feel they have nothing to lose all the people in v for vendetta have something to lose but for some reason the tv they saw uh, a guy with a uh, guy fox mask on on tv and this they decided to overthrow the government and a lot of conservatives still have that mentality when they see that and so do leftists and a lot of it's a very american modern american attitude towards uh, revolution and and what happens in there but uh that's not gonna happen and really what's going to happen is there's going to be something working within the system and, and trying to make differences there and trying to work with the temperament and instincts of the base we have. And they're really not in a revolutionary mood and they're not in the defiant mood that a lot of people on Twitter claim they are. They're not ready to you know, throw down with federal law enforcement, which they shouldn't. And there are, you know, take out like entire battalions, which people always claim that they're going to do on right wing Twitter. These guys love the military. They still love the military, even though they have a lot more skepticism towards it. They still respect veterans or people in uniform. They just have problems with General Milley and people like that. Uh, So they're really not like in that revolutionary mindset that people want and what they feel like the regime discredits itself so much that something's going to happen. Uh, I'm much more skeptical of that. So even with having Turbo America on the world stage, that doesn't prevent us from implementing a lot of our ideas. And I think there are issues that are cutting at the regime able to continue its policies the way they want. I mean, the crime issue is really waking up people and, you know, they can't just allow lawlessness to continue. 
the immigration issue, the fact that we have Eric Adams sounding like an immigration restrictionist saying that illegal immigration is going to kill the city. You know, that's a big move. And like these liberal cities can no longer handle that immigration issue. And the immigration issue is becoming a problem for the regime and how they handle it. And it can't continue forever. So there are all these pressure points that could you know, that threaten liberal power in our country and that could swing into a more right-wing direction. It's just not quite the V for Vendetta way that I think a lot of uh, right-wing influencers think. So with that in mind, I'll go to this uh, gun issue with uh, the New Mexico governor just issued and my thoughts on guns. I may just make, I'm probably going to make this more of an article, so I'm going to make this pretty brief because I thought I would include this more in the topic today, but I'm not. So uh, we will uh, address that. There's a, there's a couple of other topics I wanted to address too, but I don't know if we're going to get to them. But we will try. But the gun issue, this is taken into consideration because New Mexico's governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is likely doing this as a way to make herself a national figure, maybe set herself up for a run in 2028, is that she essentially put a gun control measure in Albuquerque or in the surrounding county saying that you can't carry a gun out in public, that all concealed carry and open carry provisions are no longer to be respected, that you are going to be arrested if you're carrying a gun. And pretty much the only way you can carry a gun out of your house if you have it in a specially contained container like a lockbox and you just take it to the gun range. Pretty much the only way you can take a gun out in public now is and have it in your cars if you're going to the gun range. So you're not going to even be allowed to carry a gun in your car if you're just you're shopping or whatever. And this is a direct violation of the Constitution. And she even said like, oh, uh, the Constitution isn't absolute. And that's not true at all. And she did this for 30 days. So it's not permanent. And she was effectively saying like, I'm the law. I'm going to take measures on guns. Lots going on here. First off, Liberal, like Albuquerque's having a real crime problem because they have liberal policies. They, you know, they lost a lot of their police force uh, because of these liberal policies and defunding uh, the police and, you know, trying to do all these things post Floyd. And obviously, crime's risen. Uh, most of the crime there is Hispanic, not black. There's not really much of a black population in New Mexico, but it's mostly Hispanic. And they've had this issue. So, liberals, instead of you know, supporting police and getting tough on crime, they're instead getting tough on gun owners. That's generally the preference for doing anything on crime related. They prefer to go after law-abiding gun owners. So this is a common thing with Democrats. And the order, you know, if it ever takes to court, it's going to get thrown out. Like, it's so unconstitutional. And even Democrats like Ted Lieu, who's like a huge libtard who wants like gun confiscation, is like saying like, uh, I'm very uncomfortable with this. Because they know it's like a direct violation of law and she doesn't have this power, but she's just doing it because she knows that a lot of liberals want her to do something. It's, it's equivalent to, say, Governor Abbott saying we're going to have the National Guard to enforce uh, immigration law and deport them. Obviously, we would love that, but there'd be uh, questionable legal legality around it. Maybe they could do that with immigration. I think uh, Abbott would probably stand on better legal ground than uh, Grisham. But, you know, it's a similar thing. It's red meat for the base. and It's a way to establish herself as a national figure uh, in preparation prior for 2028. And so that's one thing to say. And one thing, another thing, not one thing, but another thing is that gun rights has been one of the things that have been a progress for the right in over recent history. Because, you know, they always talk about how we're losing everything. But in gun rights, you know, 
there are several states. The majority of states now have open carry laws. Uh, you know, the majority of states, you know, in a lot of those states, you don't even need a permit. You know, concealed carry is pretty much everywhere. Uh, you know, in certain states where you couldn't even own a gun, now you're able to own a gun, like in D.C. and stuff. And it's becoming easier to own own a firearm due to what the courts are saying. The courts have been very pro-gun rights uh, over the last 20 years. And they've expanded. And so have a lot of legislators, legislatures, too, especially in red states. And so gun rights have expanded despite, uh, you know, pop, uh, you know, according to polls, popular opposition to or greater popular support for gun control at this. But gun rights have instead expanded rather than restricted. So that's like a big victory. And I think that's the right thing to do. But it's and this is going to be the case. Like, I don't think people. You know, it is worrying that a Democrat governor would do this, but I don't, it would not hold up in court. And I don't think that Democrats would even try to do this. One thing is like, you know, the worries of all the tyranny that could happen in America, gun confiscation always ranks as probably one of the top things is like the instigating factor of like some revolution or civil war. You know, Turner Diaries begins, you know, their revolt begins with, uh, gun confiscation, and so do a lot of the boomer conservative ripoffs of the Turner Diaries, which this is like a popular um, genre in America for the right. Is that you know the difference is uh, like with the Turner Diaries, it's just very uh, <laughs> racial to, to put it uh, mildly. You know, there's a lot of conservative alternatives which you know eliminate the race element, but it's still like they're taking our guns. We're rising up. You know, uh, Kurt Schlichter and Ben Shapiro both have their own Turner Diaries thing, and it deals a lot with gun confiscation in those novel and, and that literature. And that's very much the same with like a lot of libertarian literatures. Like they first came for our guns, then we rose up. But gun confiscation is probably one of the least, I, I think it's becoming less likely than other forms of tyranny because guns, the surprising thing about guns, and this is an important point, is that everyone, all the gun rights advocates like to say that Gun rights protect all the other rights. In reality, guns just really protect gun rights. <laughs> is uh, There's a lot of reasons they don't want to do conf gun confiscation. Is One, they'd worry that people would actually shoot them. Probably would be the case. If they tried to do gun confiscation, I, I don't think the majority of gun owners would, but there'd be a lot of gun owners that would do that. And they don't really want to deal with that. Two, it's one of the cases where they could not get local officials and even state officials to go along with it. There's a ton of gun sanctuary counties in Virginia that was worried about any type of gun restrictions that the then Democrat governor, uh, Ralph Northam, would implement. And they all became gun sanctuaries saying that we're not going to enforce these laws passed in Richmond. And there's been a couple of other states like that. And so this is already an example of, you know, law, local officials wanting to defend the right to bear arms and the Second Amendment. And then there'd be states that would do this, like say if there's a national gun ban, which I don't even think would ever happen because, you know, the Republic, no Republican would ever vote for that. And a lot of Democrats would be leery of doing a full gun confiscation, too, especially if they have any type of 
like rural base of supporters that they have to depend on. Like, you know, Vermont and a lot of these uh, lawmakers from Vermont and Maine and some of the, you know, more New England states aren't really into that stuff. I mean, Massachusetts obviously is an exception, but New Hampshire, they'd have trouble winning that state if they were full on gun confiscation. And even like Bernie Sanders used to be pretty pro-gun rights. He's changed a bit on his attitude, but he wouldn't vote for gun confiscation because that would be very deeply unpopular in his own state. So they, but that aside, even if they did do a national gun confiscation, there'd be tons of state and local officials who are like, we're not complying, and that would be a direct threat to the legitimacy of the regime, but it would just be on this one issue. And so those two things, it's like gun rights really just protect guns, or guns really just protect gun rights. It doesn't really protect anything else. Like they can still implement hate speech laws. The COVID lockdowns, like gun rights, had nothing to do with whether they implemented gun uh, COVID lockdowns or not. It had more to do with whether they could get rural areas that with have low law enforcement or not much law enforcement and really no people to go out and to try to enforce these laws. And two, they didn't want to send people to the hood, which people in the hood are not really law-abiding gun owners. And they they knew if they were sending officials there that even if they were sending police and arresting people, that would be racist. And this is happening with George Floyd. And so obviously that wasn't going to happen. And two, if they're just sending normal like officials with a mask, that those people would get their ass beaten or shot. So they weren't going to do that with the hood. I mean, um, it was, blacks were probably a bigger reason why we didn't have Australian-style lockdowns than... Uh, gun rights. You can maybe play that was a little bit of role, but you can even see that in that case I show, which there was a couple of other cases similar to that, where this bar was like refusing to close down. And then they had like some boomer waffen protecting them. And then the cops came, pointed their guns and the boomer waffen surrendered. Uh, you know, it didn't really do anything to protect those rights. So it's really, and they, they could easily implement hate speech laws. And even what you're seeing what they're doing with J6 and Trump, you know, it's, you know, guns don't really play a role at all in this stuff. They're not really protecting their rights. And I think it's a balm for a lot of people that they can feel that they have a lot of power and they can resist tyranny as long as they collect guns. When, in fact, the vast majority of gun owners would never use their guns in that against authority. The real point of gun ownership is not so much to resist tyranny because we're in a lot of ways having tyranny at the same time gun rights are expanding and more people have like weaponry they couldn't have dreamed of owning 30 years ago but now they can own it and you know so it's not really stopping tyranny but at the same time gun ownership is important for your right to protect yourself and defend your property that's the real purpose of gun rights is that you're a self-sufficient citizen who can defend himself in those scenarios where you can't depend on police because you know if you have a home invader in your home you're there's not going to be a lot of time to get police there to save you and your family you, you know you have to take direct action now and a gun gives you that ability to do that and it's the same in any any other self-defense scenarios but the real problem and this is another thing that gun rights aren't defending is that their gun rights aren't guns aren't even doing a good job of defending your right to defend yourself because we've seen this in several cases which Kyle Rittenhouse Daniel Perry, different from Daniel Penny, uh, but Daniel Penny's also in that too. Daniel Perry is the army sergeant who was uh, tried and convicted for shooting an Antifa checkpoint guard who was threatening him with a rifle and the guy pulled out his handgun and shot him. 
And there's several, and there's also the case in Kansas City where the elderly white guy shot a black kid trying to uh, enter his home. And, you know, even going into the Ahmad Arbery case where, you know, their right to bear arms was thrown out, that they shouldn't even have been carrying firearms with, with them when they confronted Ahmad Arbery, who was an alleged robber. And so, you know, the right to self-defense is being undermined in our country, despite the expansion of gun rights. And the most important thing about guns is that it gives you the ability to defend yourself and your property from outside intruders and from hostile forces rather than, you know, resisting tyranny. And I think that's a better way to face it. And that's why it's much more important to defend, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse or we'll just say Kyle Rittenhouse since he's a good example. It's much more important to defend those Kyle Rittenhouse, Daniel Penny and Daniel Perry than it is to have permitless open carry, in, in my opinion, because What's the good of a permitless open carry is if you use that gun to and to defend yourself and then the police arrest you for murder? What's the good of it? That's why it's better to set legal precedent that we're going to defend the right to right to self-defense much more than it is to give you the ability to carry an AR-15 around slacked around your shoulder. Because what are you going to do with that? You know, if you're if you if you're taking away if we're undermining the right to self-defense, if, if you even use that in any situation where there's, um, you know, where you're a white guy and it's against a black guy or it's some other politically protected group, you're going to go to jail if there's if the right to self-defense is undermined. So there's no point to it. You're just parading around with your toy. And I think a lot of times gun ownership becomes a way of collecting toys rather than, you know, collecting means to protect yourself. It's not a worse hobby, but I think a lot of these gun rights guys think that, you know, that they more guns they own, it's like, that's like the greatest achievement, but it's like, what, what good is all those guns? If you can't even defend yourself with them, you still, if there are still cases where you don't have to quite worry about it, where, you know, if there is like an armed home intruder and he's in your home, like directly in your home and you shoot him, there's very few juries that will ever convict you, but there could be a case soon enough where, you know, there's white homeowner, black home invader, where you could see that there's charges pressed, that there's enough political uh, push for it. So that's, it's much more, the gun ownership is much more about the right to self-defense. And that's like a right that has to be defended much more than granting the right for you to own a bazooka or whatever. Because uh, like, wh what the hell are you going to fucking use that bazooka for anyway? And it's just a toy at that in that regard. And so that's a way to keep, and that's another way that it like is better able to, for these people not to resist tyranny. It's like, okay, we're going to allow you to collect all these toys and you can go shoot them out in your back uh, backyard. I don't know if many people can shoot them out of the backyard, but could shoot them in the woods or go to uh, the gun range and shoot them as much as you like. But if you ever use it for a real life situation, we're going to punish you and your guns can't help you, then that's not resisting tyranny at all. So much more important to defend the right to uh, self-defense than these type of like gun expansions that they want that some of the gun rights movement want it's like the gun rights movement should do more to be providing the defense funds for daniel perry daniel penny and kyle rittenhouse than they should to uh, get the legal right to own a bazooka or whatever i know some 2a guys will be like nobody's arguing that for if you look at a lot of the second amendment stuff you know they were hesitant to defend kyle rittenhouse in a lot of in a, in a lot of ways when he got arrested even though that was the most important case to Second Amendment supporters, 
you know, in the last, you know, in recent memory, they were hesitant to support that, but they'll go off about like, now you can own this cool ass firearm and you can carry it around in public. And that's so awesome. It's the same with like these open carry protests. It's like, they actually really defeat the purpose, even though in Virginia, there was a massive open carry protest in early 2000 or 20, I keep wanting to say 2000 instead of 2020. I don't know why, but in early 2020, right before COVID hit and they all these guys in Virginia did it and it was like a large protest and I think it was like a good thing because it was just so large and massive outside the the guns didn't really didn't matter just the fact that they had thousands of good old boys from Virginia saying like hey we still want our guns we still want our gun rights and that's a bigger point but even like what happened with like New Mexico it's like these guys show with firearms and stuff it does really convince people the public you know because when you're carrying around like an AR-15 in public People view that as a threat. It's like, I'm going to use this. It's the same with carrying around a mask. Because it's like saying, I'm a threatening person. I'm a menacing person. And if you have a large crowd where guys are just, like in the Virginia case, where, you know, these guys aren't really marching around menacing people. And there's so many people there that it's actually just sending a bigger message that, like, look at the massive amount of support for gun rights. But if it's just a few people there, which is most of these open carry protests, you know, it comes off as a threat. And to a lot of the general public, they become uncomfortable with that rather than being won over. And also these guys are never going to use their guns anyway uh, in this case. So what? what's the point of it? It's the same It's the same with mass protesters is that you got to consider optics and what try what type of message you're trying to send with a demonstration. Now, if it's for gun rights, I understand like carrying around guns to show like, hey, we're law-abiding citizens and we're not a real threat. You could carry along that message, but in a lot of times it carries along like these guys are like some threat and we need to do something about them. So you have to always have to worry about that. I don't think that they're the most effective form of protest, but conservatives really love uh, open carry protests for whatever reason. So that's my opinion about guns. I think I'm going to write an article about that this week, but we have a few other topics I want to address, but I've had, you know, we've already an hour in and after talking about so many other topics, I lose my energy and, and, and attention for a lot of topics because I really, once I have one topic, I want to really want to devote a lot of time into it and stuff. And so there's one topic was the question of football because I've been thinking about uh, whether we should change the Greerhead pledge about the NFL and how that unites the country around us and that question. But I think that might be an IQ something this week rather than a topic this week. But I do want to say is that one thought, and I'm giving a preview for the IQ something, I guess, is that one thing that does keep America like glued together and united and regime legitimacy is professional sports. Because it is a stable force that people gravitate towards and they put aside their problems and issues they may have with the world around them and they get into sports and they direct a lot of that masculine energy, that masculine energy about the need to to conquer their enemies and to hate their enemies and the tribalism that is a part of pro sports. All that type of you know, violent male energy that, you know, societies have tried to control is all transferred into professional sports. So instead of guys being like, my ethnic group is the best, like I want to fight for my ethnic group and, you know, ensure that we have more power in this country. Instead, it's like my ethnic group are the Philadelphia Eagles and I want to crush the Cowboys. And that's like where that a lot of energy goes. And it's further in that like the risk taking and the need to, you know, conquer and show off your ability to win 
over your friends or enemies. That's all their that's other further directed by gambling because that's a lot of risk taking. That's about like bragging rights. It's about showing off like, look, I'm winning all this money for it. I'm taking risks. And so a lot of that energy that I think would be directed towards maybe defying the regime or something that like, you know, single men do when they're unhappy with society, you know, that would be taken into political unrest. That's instead directed into sports betting. And the expansion of sports betting, I think, has had a calming effect on this society. Uh, Not very good, I don't think. But it's like a lot of the young men who would otherwise maybe be protesting or demonstrating or wanting change are instead focusing all their energy on fantasy football and sports betting. Which, you know, maybe there's, you could say there's not really the alternatives for them right now, but... You know, that's really what it is. It's acting as an opiate for the masses. But it's not even just simply that is an opiate. It's that it gives people a sense of what America is. And it's like their way of remaining loyal to the regime. Because if you really care about football and you want like football on all the time, it's like a way that it's a way of venting your frustration and, and, and you know, clearing away your unhappiness and that maybe with the larger social world or social problems you see around you, as long as you have football or another professional sport that you're really into, or even like college sport, because college football will be into this, it really does make you more willing to just go with the flow and accept things as the way they are because at least football is on. And it acts as a way of granting the legitimacy to the regime because what is something that brings Americans together? Sports. And a lot of, and even like guys who are really into sports who really are not taking the Greer Head Pledge will always emphasize that fact. They're like, look, the one thing that keeps America together is sports. And this is what brings us together. It's a Super Bowl. And that is true. And uh, for better or for worse. And that's just something to consider about uh, football and, and, its, and its return. I think a big reason that um, there were so many riots in 2020, both with BLM and uh, BLM riots and then with J6 is because there was the threat to professional sports being truncated and maybe we weren't going to have sports anymore. And when 2021, when college football was fully back, that they had fans in the in the stands and there was all these games where the fans were going crazy. I remember distinctly that there was Virginia Tech where they had they always open up with the team coming out to enter Sandman and the and the crowd went nuts. And then there was like Wisconsin, which I think they had jump around as like their song and the audience was not. It really just said to like America, like, okay. We're calming down. We're not so unhappy anymore because we finally have sports to direct all this energy towards. So uh, I think there will be enough to talk about for an IQ solving, but I just wanted to get that out there. So brief conversation on that. And then two more brief things that I wanted to get into till we get the Cotton Elite questions. One is the Danny Masterson uh, sentence. He was uh, sentenced for rape of three women and he was given 30 years in jail and uh this really is a miscarriage of justice i mean regardless of whether masterson is a piece of shit i mean he is not like an upstanding individual uh, he's not quite harvey weinstein like i even said that like harvey weinstein was overcharged but even though he's clearly a fucking scumbag and he's like it's like no shame that he like fell from grace but at the end of the day like harvey weinstein was essentially convicted of rape for 
<coughs> or sexual assault by like a girlfriend of his who had consensual sex. And then afterwards she's like, oh, actually it was rape. And then the whole time she was like laughing about it. It's like, oh, he has a small penis, which regardless of whether Harvey Weinstein deserves that, I think is probably deserved it. It's at the end of the day, it's like you could just have like a girlfriend who, you know, you're full. Everything's fully okay, consensual. And then she's like, um, actually, I changed my mind and I'm going to go to court. And like the witness who was like the key witness at the Harvey Weinstein trial was like not convincing at all. She's like laughing about it, being nonchalant about it. It's like, if this is a very traumatic incident, why are you laughing about it and focusing more on emphasizing like, Harvey had a small penis, which is more about humiliating him than that. But he was sentenced to like over 20 years in jail. And Masterson, it's even like this guy had in the realm of, uh, you know, sex, uh, which, you know, it's like a dubious consent because these women said like, oh, they're drugged or they were drunk and they couldn't remember. And there was a lot of questions. And one of the women who and one woman that, you know, had been making these claims and he had done a payout to her of $400,000. <clears> and then she's like, oh, I forget my story. And then later on, she's like, they conspired together. And they're like, oh, yeah, he definitely raped us. And then one of the women who claimed that he or dating Masterson raped them was a girlfriend of Masterson. And, you know, they were well into the relationship when they had this dubious, uh, they had sex of dubious consent, maybe or questionable consent. And she was really just convinced by her husband, who is like the singer of Mars Volta, to do this because this guy really didn't like Danny Masterson. And that's what it is. You know, was this like the best practices on Danny Masterson? Yeah, no, no, not at all. Was maybe this some of this criminal? I don't know. That's like, it's a really questionable thing. Is it worth 30 years in jail? Absolutely not. Like you could be... A guy, let's say, and there's been plenty of cases of this. Let's just say you're a guy who, or let's say there's a case where a guy grabs a woman, has a knife to her throat, and drags her into an alley and rapes her. That's very, that guy's probably not even getting 10 years. That guy may even only get two years. And that's like clearly what the public definition of rape is. It's like it's some guy who just like assaults a woman, drags her in a back alley, or drags her somewhere, and uses violence to intimidate her and rapes her. And that guy is never going to get, that guy's definitely not going to get 30 years in jail. Especially if he's a black guy. <laughs> Especially if he's a black guy. Because there's been several cases where there's a new one where there's like some black guy who got less than a year in jail for a type of rape like that. Like a violent rape. And I think it was even of a minor. And like those people, those, the actual rapists aren't going to get 30 years. But Danny Masterson, the fact that he, you know, as a celebrity, he's a white celebrity and they view this as power and privilege and it was a part of me too and like the accusers are prominent as well and they really wanted to send a message to men is like men you are uh you are not going to be uh, having sex anymore <laughs> straight men unless women give you write a contract out with you to say you are uh, some people the trads would be like that's awesome but uh, that's really not good for men uh, to have this and it's really just that he's being significantly punished like 30 years for this crime is out fucking rageous like murderers don't even get 30 years <laughs> it's like even regardless of like the rape like violent rapists and murderers don't get 30 years for this and danny masterson got 30 years for you know having drunken sex with these women where maybe consent wasn't fully granted which is in a dubious legal territory and so it is like the worst case of Me Too. And there's like people worrying that like there's a backlash against Me Too. This is showing that Me Too is like 
fully entrenched and powerful in our society is and really dictating the norms there. And so, like, you know, Danny Masterson should have been a lot smarter. He should have been less of a, maybe less of a creep and that stuff. But, you know, we generally don't think of that stuff as, like, you know, there's always going to be that questionable, like, territory there when it, when, and people have drunken sex all the time. And this is what really what had happened. And, you know, Danny Masterson, if he had just pulled a knife on a woman and dragged her and not been a famous actor, or dragged a woman into a back alley and raped her, he would have been getting like two years. Okay. And so that's really like a miscarriage of justice here. I think that is something like our justice system. It really is a sign of anarcho tyranny because there are so many violent felons who get like slaps on the wrist. And, you know, our justice system allows so many black criminals to get off. Like I've been documenting these cases where, you know, which things from like Ethan Liming where three black guys beat him to death and they're all getting light treatment for that. And they're getting defended in court by like prosecutors. Uh, there's several other cases where like a lot of black guys can literally get away with murder if they murder a white guy and then they claim, oh, he's calling me the N-word. Um, there's several cases of that. Meanwhile, if you are a prominent white person who becomes like public enemy number one or is wanted to be seen as like the embodiment of male privilege or the embodiment of white privilege, you're going to face a long time in jail. So I think this is maybe not as comparable to what's happening to Enrique Otario and a lot of the J6ers, but it's a part of the same trend because this is not simply, you know, a reaction towards Hollywood. He has been accused of a political crime, of using his male privilege, of using his white privilege to prey on these young women and, you know, having sex with them when they were drunk. And it's like, this is the worst crime that can ever be imagined. And so this is essentially a political crime. And that's why he's getting such a tough sentence. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, if Trump becomes president again, he needs to, offer, I don't think he can offer a pardon to Danny Masterson. Uh, I don't think he would offer a pardon to Danny Masterson because even his friends like Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, you know, they just simply said like offered leniency letters and he did need leniency. Like, I mean, even if you think he's convicted of a crime, like 30 years is fucking outrageous. He like deserved at most five years. <laughs> it's, it's even the same with like Harvey Weinstein. Like I think Harvey Weinstein, even if you, even if you think he was convicted of a crime, I think it's like maximum five years. Like, just look at violent criminals who are actually a threat to society. I mean, Harvey is very different. You know, I think Harvey is probably a threat to society in his own ways. But Danny Masterson is not. Um, but yeah, the, and Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher, even though being lifelong friends with Danny Masterson from that study show, they had an issue of, of, you know, a public apology just for asking leniency for this guy who... It was sentenced to 30 years for a crime he shouldn't even been convicted of. And even if he was convicted of, he should have gotten a max five years. So it is outrageous. I don't, I think a lot of people don't like Hollywood stars and this guy isn't the most likable Hollywood star there is. And so a lot of people, and he's like Scientologist. And so there's a lot of reasons to dislike the guy. But if you look at the sentencing, it is outrageous. It is a miscarriage of justice. And it is part of this politicization of the law and a sign of anarcho tyranny where the only people are going to throw in jail are like Enrique Terrio, Danny Masterson, and like random people walking around the Capitol or people who use a gun in self-defense. Meanwhile, like violent criminals who use violence to actually rape women and rape strangers 
or murder people and rob and violently rob people are going to get off with like a year in jail or maybe not even any time in jail. And so this is like an, an illustration of the anarcho tyranny that reigns in our society. So it is something important. And this goes along with another case I want to say. Uh, we've talked about these cases before. And it's always what happens when people get attacked in public. And there's a new video. Anytime this happens when people are getting attacked or assaulted in public, there's always a debate over whether you should intervene. <clears throat> Daniel Penny should have given uh, credence to why people don't intervene is that the fact that this guy was threatening people on a train and then he intervened and now he's charged with you know, manslaughter. He's uh, charged with very serious charges and could be spending a lot of time in jail just for doing the right thing. And while we should defend him, you know, this does show why a lot of people don't want to intervene is because like they don't want to go to jail for 20 years if they, you know, make the wrong move. And so there's always these videos. Well, there's now a new video where these two white women are getting beaten up by black guys in public and daylight and broad daylight. And first video that showed it just showed them getting their ass beat and then the second video showed the white women starting the fight and like one white woman like trying to wail on this black guy and the black guy first shows remarkable restraint i have to give him that i'm not wanting to defend him i'm not wanting to defend uh, their actions but he's just trying to and i don't know what started it i don't know if these girls were with the black guys and they had an argument or whether these guys cat called them or smacked their ass i don't know what happened we don't know what initiated it we just know what's on the blanket video and people like to do content farming too it's like the the, the amount of content farming going on on elon twitter is like outrageous because everyone's now wanting to get that advertising money so people are just like repurposing old videos and old content for Stuff And I was seeing this with, there was the video of the black guy taking out some ice cream from a freezer and licking it. That video is three and a half years old. And people are like, this guy deserves execution. What are people doing now? And it's like, it's three and a half years old. <laughs> it's like, this clip's not even new. And they're going with that. Uh, people are showing that. And then I saw in Wokeness, it's like, stole a tweet of mine, which is like one of my most popular tweets ever, I think which was about the, one of the new Viking shows. I think this Viking show came out in like 2021. This, this tweet is at least a year and a half old, if not two years old. I think it's exactly around two years old. I think I tweeted in like late 2021 or very early 2022. And this show is not even new. And so it's like been out for at least two years. And in the show, they turned Jarl Hakon, who is the last pagan ruler of Norway into a black woman obviously he was not black and I just pointed out and I did photos pictures depicting them too in wokeness changed slightly changed the wording used the exact same photos exact same pictures I used in this tweet that's like nearly two years old and it got like 70 80,000 likes it got insane engagement and it's all just due to the advertising thing so it's a lot of content farming so this video that was shown was an example of content farming that people are now doing. And it's very successful content farming because everyone was talking about it for yesterday. And in the video, so content farming aside, it was obviously going to generate debate. And once again, it had all these women who were like, where are the good men to fight off these attackers? Like they need their man to defend you. And then the right wing, you know, realistic types are like, uh, look, if you fight them, you're you know with a weapon you would have to use a weapon because these guys are like pretty big like i don't think the average white guy would 
first off, he's like taking on three of them, and it's like the average white guy, unless he's like extremely skilled, like in MMA or something, or or be. Uh, and martial arts or something of that sort or he's like a very big guy himself you know he's probably gonna get a walloping so he's probably gonna need to have a weapon with him and most likely scenario if you see from daniel penny like this guy intervening in a stranger's you know brouhaha which may be even a you know some type of lover's fat you know he's gonna get like arrested and face a long time in jail because you could see what daniel penny is like white guy goes in and attacks blacks Minding their own business with a deadly weapon. That's what could happen. So that's like one thing that was going on. And all these women are uh, lamenting it. And there, somebody brought up these great tweets of this woman who uh, I think are, I actually won't bring up her name. I don't want to. We will not shame her. But she's has some people retweet her on right wing Twitter for some reason. And she won, She condemned Daniel Penny. She's like, these monsters defending it. It's like it was a cruel act and that she had had several tweets complaining about how men won't defend random women on, on trains. It's like, well, here's a man who does it and then you condemn him. So all the women that are complaining about the, like, no men intervening would, many of them would also celebrate the guys who intervene going to jail. But in this case, like, you know, outside of that, really the case is like these women are fucking idiots. Like you do not start fights with men, especially not like very big, like sizable black guys. Like what do these women expect to happen? It's like that they kick their ass. Like that's not going to happen at all. It's it's so stupid. Like these women, like I, I, I did not like the video. I don't support it. But like if you're an idiot, you're going to suffer what happens to idiots. It's like you do not like start trying to wail on a black uh, on like a sizable black guy and expect this guy to just like get defeated by you. No, these guys, these women were and these guys, I don't want to defend their behavior, but they they did show some more remarkable strength that I've seen in other videos cuz there's been a ton of videos where they have athletes and there was one with a case with, I forget this player name, but this is like at Florida state. And this is like 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago where this guy's at a bar and some fat white girl gets insulted by him and she punches and she punches him. And then this guy like knocked her out and it's like, okay, that's wrong. But it's like this White girl should have been smarter and not try to fight this guy. The guy didn't show any restraint at all. These guys at least were trying to like grab hold of him and be like, yo, chill. I probably saying something like that. And then they realized that the women were not chilling and then they went into full violence mode. Uh, so that wasn't, that was not the full violence mode was not warranted. But these women, it's like if you start wailing on some guy and you continue to wail on him, even though he's trying to restrain you and stop you, like what the hell do you think is going to happen? So these women are just being idiots. You need to be smart. Like maybe these guys deserved it for like smacking their ass or whatever. I don't know. We don't know the story. Uh, but these women are fucking idiots <laughs> and they should have just, you know, walked away uh, instead of, thinking that they're badasses and just violent. And it's more about like women just thinking that they, from all this media and stuff that they think that like they can kick a guy's ass because every movie shows that they can kick a guy's ass. And then no guy will respond violently to them and they can do whatever they want. And it's like, that's not how things work. It's like the guy's bigger, stronger and, and more violent and aggressive than you. If you, unless you're like a WNBA athlete on testosterone you're probably not going to win that fight or an mma fighter you're a female mma fighter you're not going to win that fight you're going to get your ass beat and that's unfortunately what happened in that case so people just 
need to be smarter. These women. So the more important story is that outside of like the black and white t- attacks or like no guys intervening, it's more the more important moral stories that women. Uh, these women are just being idiots. Uh, there was another case that was similar to this that happened in Richmond, Virginia. I think this was two years ago. Yeah, this this is like 2021. As they're still wearing masks. And there was like some black guy who smacked a, like an Antifa looking like hipster chick on the ass or like punk chick on the ass. And this white girl like threw water on him. And this guy was huge. And she just began reacting violently towards this, uh, like aggressively to this guy. Because this, this guy smacked her on the ass and was like, you know, propositioning her and she had resisted. And so she just reacted to it. And then this black guy just like knocked her out with one punch. And in that case, I, I was seeing like, because black Twitter had taken this is like black guy defends himself against violent attack from white women. It's like, yeah, right. So in that case, I was like, because black Twitter was defending it. I was like, this is outrageous. Like this clearly the guy was in the wrong. And that may have been the case here, but with that woman, that woman was really just like yelling at him and like kind of pushing. And I think she threw water at him. And I think it's something like that. It was not like I think of the black guy or somebody had told her like, hey, calm down. Like you're going to get your you're going to get beaten up here. Uh, she would probably would have calmed down. But in this case, like the women just kept going, it kept escalating and kept fighting. And they both were jumping on this one guy and uh, consequences happen. So it's a rather stupid case. I don't think there's. Um, the real important message is women need to be smarter <laughs> about these things. They should not initiate fights with uh, large black men <laughs> is the uh, is their true meaning of the story. Now on to the kind of league questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the kind of lead option at highly respected Substack. And that's at highly respected dotsubstack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. And so the first question comes from our favorite New England refugee. We'll start off with him as first instead of last. We started off with him as last. He loves giving questions, but that's great. And he was asking about cop cities. Like, hey Scott, I know you did an IQ supplement on this, and I'm wondering what you think about this new development. Because they charge these Antifa guys with RICO charges. Same thing they did with Trump and uh, his supporters over um, the 2020 election in Georgia. Why do you think they are charging Antifa with RICO? Are covering their asses for the RICO against Trump? Magic indifference for magic type Antifa types getting punished? Or the cops push the local officials to crack the whip? What do you think? One, it's not covering their asses for RICO because these are charges um, directed by the state attorney general, not by Fannie Willis, and that's a Republican. They may be inspired by Trump in that the fact they see they knew Fannie Willis was pursuing RICO charges and they're like, well, let's pursue RICO charges against Antifa. And I think that they, they have a much better case here because it was a criminal conspiracy that they these guys were operating. They were handing out leaflets, encouraging violence against police and law enforcement. And, you know, they were setting up t- doing terrorism against the against the cop city that was being built and trying to destroy it. And doing all these types of activities they were not supposed to be doing and and even threatening the lives of or causing unsafe conditions for the people working on it by like cutting their lines and stuff. Uh, So there was like a criminal conspiracy here, much more so than uh, with Georgia, you know, the challenging election in Georgia in 2020. And part of it is magic indifference that like pretty much all the people charged are white or (laughs) white ish. I guess. And so they, there's not that many um, 
blacks among them so they're able to get away with this without having racism charges and it's the cops are definitely pushing for this because the cops are like this is outrageous that we have so much disrespect towards us that we have this defiance against us we want the toughest penalties put here and police and Atlanta's having a crime problem and they're trying to keep and they're having recruitment problems and so they're trying to keep the police happy and they're like okay we will like charge them with the most severe thing we can find and this is what they did. And so it's a combination. And one thing with police is like it's up until recently, it's been very rare for people who attack or kill cops to go off with easiest char easy charges. Generally, you're going to get the toughest charges possible because that's against law enforcement. And the police union is like, we want an example set. We do not want these guys to get off easy for attacking people like us. And so this is what's happening with these Antifa types here is that the police want something to happen. Now, there have been cases where uh, certain magical individuals have gotten away with attacking law enforcement. The most extreme example, I think this is from 20, I think it was 2021, whereas a California, uh, a white female cop in California was had the shit beaten out of her by a black guy she was trying to arrest. And the guy uh, got off scot-free <laughs> uh, for uh, no apparent reason at all. He just uh, they let him go because they felt that he needed to do this. I, that's the most extreme example. That's the first time I've ever seen something like that um, happen with someone involved in law enforcement. But in general, that's like an exception. Um, and there's no magic involved here. So the people in Georgia and especially the Republican state attorney general, they want to send a message and more. It's more about that. They're trying to please law enforcement and, and support them than anything else. But there are factors coming in here. The Trump thing that may play a minor factor in it. And it's also, I think it's a way for the Georgia Republican leadership to show to their base that like, we're getting serious. We're cracking down on Antifa and they know the base hates these people and they hate, and they also want to say that we're doing something about the lawlessness and crime in Atlanta by taking a strong stance against these guys. So I think that's it. Uh, you know, if Fannie Willis was the one charging it, there'd be a little bit more to say <laughs> about it. But it's not Fannie Willis. It's it's the Republican attorney general. So it's not that surprising that they went with these charges. So it's not quite as interesting. So we're so that is the first question. We've got some much more questions to go on. Then we've got Friendly Griper who asks, Scott, what do you think about the new Tucker Obama's gay interview? Well, <laughs> you know, here's some things that I wanted to point out. Obama definitely experimented with homosexuality. We'll use experiment with homosexuality while he's in college. Uh, whether he did that past, you know, we don't really have evidence for. Did he have sex with Larry Sinclair, who is the guy I interviewed in the Tucker interview? No. <laughs> uh, Larry Sinclair is a lifelong con artist who has been sent to jail multiple times. And even in jail, he was like a terrible prisoner. He was not a well-behaved prisoner. And pretty much all of his crimes involve fraud. Um, this guy was not living in Chicago when he was, uh, I think, living in Colorado when uh, Obama, when he said he had sex with Obama in 1999. He has no proof or evidence for this. And he's like a lifelong liar and con artist. Most likely, so it's unlikely this guy had sex with Obama. Some, there's definitely a guy out there who had sex with Obama. Uh, they just haven't found that person yet. So this guy, probably not there. Uh, the Tucker, on Tucker interviewing this guy, because a lot of people are like, this is not very serious. This is not what Tucker should be talking about. And I sympathize with that point of view because 
Tucker is leaning a little bit too much into the insane clown party stuff. Like, everything he's talking about is like, oh, we're talking about aliens. We're talking about random conspiracy theories. We're talking about JFK. And it's like all these sidetracks. And then Obama is gay. And we're going to interview Larry Sinclair, who's clearly not a credible source. And we're going to go along with that. And so I think it, and at this moment, we really need like people to tell like people what's up and to focus them on the right direction rather than being misdirected towards all these uh, funny conspiracy theories and and other <laughs> matter that aren't really that important to what's going on. Um, so I do worry about that. But at the same time, and it, and Tucker's it comes out with like even Tucker's questioning of of Trump. He's like you know asks him about Jeffrey Epstein, uh, which you know that's an interesting thing, but it's like not really important to what Trump is about. And then he's like, oh, he's going to be assassinated by the regime. I don't think he's going to be assassinated by the regime. Maybe if he did one win presidency, but even then, um, I think they would just do what they did last time, but they'd do a, a even stronger job of it. And then it's like, do you think civil war is going to break out? It's like, I, it's, it's not going to break out. And it is like talking about hot war with Russia. And there's like a lot of, t- like, it's a lot of French stuff that's like, I, I don't want to say French, but it's a lot of these off the wall stuff that's just not going to happen. Now that Obama's gay interview, unlike a lot of the other stuff, which had a very serious tone to it, this was a very like entertaining, funny interview. It's like Jerry Springer stuff. And it's what the people want. And a thing with Tucker is that, you know, we would want him to do a serious monologues, but Twitter is not the right format for it. And it doesn't really get him attention because there's a million other people who are doing monologues on similar content and stuff. What made Tucker different was that he was doing on Fox. And he's like very talented at doing it, those monologues, uh, much more so than some other people. And so that's what made it different. But now he's doing on, on Twitter. It's like there's nothing there's nothing that that's special about it. Well, what makes him special is that he's able to secure these interviews and have very entertaining interviews that everyone wants to watch, and they generate a lot of attention and and news focus. And so media outlets are actually going to cover it. And it's and people have complained about the Tate brothers, him interviewing the Tate brothers. Maybe he talks to them too much, but people would rather watch that than like interviews with uh you know an orthodox priest or are these people they were suggesting like nobody would watch that and it's the same with like the monologues is like it's much he's going to get more attention and more news coverage if he interviews larry sinclair than if he gives it um a monologue on the great replacement this is what drives attention and tucker is very much concerned with being a relevant figure and showing that he's still a major player in media and the best way to do that is through these off-the-wall interviews than with monologues. So that's really his uh, assumption now. So Obama, um, whether he's still gay, that's a question. But he definitely, you know, according to, you know, his own uh, writings where he said that, like, when he's dream- when he's ha- he when he's having sex with women, he thinks about having sex with men. You know, other evidence that he had had sex with men in college. You know, he definitely has had gay relations uh, but he probably did not have him with Larry Sinclair. So that's my thoughts on that. Uh, now this question comes from John. John asks, Hi, Scott. 36% of U.S. adults getting divorced are age 50 or older. The only age group with an increasing divorce rate are adults 65 and older. 2022 data. I've seen it myself in my line of work. My question is, what is causing baby boomers to get divorced and what effect will, will all these single old people have on the country? 
That's a very good question. It's something that I haven't, you know, it's something that I've definitely known about, but I haven't thought about much before getting this question. And it's easy to say like, oh, the baby boomers is just individualistic and hedonistic and they want to, you know, they don't really care about their commitments and relationships. And maybe that's true. So it's like a boomer mentality, you know, that they've, they've been a generation that had grown up with the normalization of divorce. I mean, the boomers were always known as the ones who normalized divorce and just got through it. And so a lot of these people have probably already been in, through divorce earlier in their life. This might be their second or third divorce when they're getting uh, divorced after 60. But it's, uh, so there's something there where it's a different cultural climate. I think it's also the way that boomers are living now is different than it was before is that, you know, prior to the development of technology, maybe the development, the full development of these, a lot of these retirement communities is that they're really stuck with this person because that, you know, wasn't like they had other options. And also when you're older, you realize that the horror of dying alone, you know, because you're like, no one's there to take care of me. No one's there to, you know, wonder what happens, you know, if I fall and break my hip, no one's there to call 911. And there's like a lot more worries that you have about being alone as an older person than you have when you're, you know, in your 20s and 30s. Uh, so those those fears really come out. But I think now they feel like, oh, I can find someone else because of senior dating sites where there's a ton of that's a real proliferating market. And now even they're having a bachelor, uh, the golden year they're having. I think it's the golden bachelor where they're having a pl uh, over 60 a bachelor for this, which is a part of this trend that there's all these single old people who now want to pretend that they're young. And it's also that a lot of these retirement communities, it's a it's a chance for these old people to live out their college years now in that confines of the retirement community as like Margaritaville, as I talked about last uh, last week, uh, Jimmy Buffett's retirement community, you know, where they go and play beer pong and they're partying and stuff and they're living like they're in college. And it's also that a lot of times, unlike for older uh, other generations, is that their kids aren't really around. Is that there's more of a disconnect between boomer parents and their children and grandchildren than there are for boomer parents because, you know, they're living far away from them. Uh, there's been a lot of complaints I know from parents uh, that I know that they're like, they're boomer. Uh, they're the grandparents who are boomers don't really do anything to help with the kids. That they're just focused on traveling and living it up rather than doing any type of family obligations, which. That was very different for, you know, the greatest generation and the lost generation. You know, they were still around to help the kids. They still had these family obligations. They were still, you know, very tight knit with them, generally lived in the same area as them. But, you know, they may live on the other side of the country from their kids. And so they're not as connected to the kids. And that's a big reason to stay together for a lot of people is for their kids is that they don't want to create that experience for their kids. And they stay together for their commitment to the kids. And once the kids are out of the home, you know, and they never see them, you know, that reason goes by the wayside. And there's other arguments saying that a lot of these older people, due to boomer independence, they don't really want to, if one of their partner gets really sick and has chronic illness, you know, they don't want to be a caretaker for them. And they'd rather just divorce them and leave them. And that's even for younger couples, too, when someone gets like a chronic illness. That There's a surprising amount of people who like get cancer and then their partner leaves them or something. Uh, you can you can obviously assume which partner that is on gender, but it's uh, that's a that's a common theme. So it's that they just have they feel they have more opportunity to 
meet other people that they, you know, if they divorce, they feel that they won't die alone, that they can find someone else. And there's now a dating market, both with apps and in the retirement community. And, you know, they, they, you know, they, there's this desire for more individual happiness and not staying together. And there's nothing really keeping them together because, you know, they don't really see the kids that much. And that's not real, a real reason to stay together. And so they'd rather just, you know, go their separate ways and, do that now. What the effects on society would be? Uh, I don't know. It's not as the bigger social effect because these they already have kids, and they're just alone. I think it's just an acceleration of what they're already doing. Is that they're you know getting really into cable news and news networks, and that makes them angrier and more um, more susceptible to scams, and not just like political scams, but just scams in general. I mean, it's really awful what's happened with boomers and like people giving them phone calls and saying like, oh, all your money's stolen. Give it us, give us your social security number so we can recover it. And boomers are getting scammed left and right. I mean, the type of calls my parents get, it's like, it's really bad. Fortunately, my parents are skeptical of that stuff, but there's a lot of boomers who are not. And they're just literally their prey for these type of criminals and conners. Probably Larry Sinclair is one of them. <laughs> but, um, you know, that that's a big worry that you have to have. Uh, but otherwise, I think they're just going to be more politicized than before. The maybe older generations and maybe a little bit more upset about the direction of the country. So maybe it'd be more right wing. But it's also that they're uh, more hostile to any changes to their entitlements, um, whether it's Social Security or Medicare, you know, that they're going to be much more dependent on that because they're largely connected disconnected from their family so they're going to be demanding more benefits for themselves and more hoarding of their wealth and not wanting to pass it on to future generations than before especially if they're single and they're cutting off ties with their family so it's more social developments for with politics but the bigger problem is if they already have kids and they still have some family you know that's different from what's going to happen when a lot of these completely childless, you know, marriageless uh, Gen Xers and millennials get older. What's the real big problem that's going to happen is when a bunch of millennials that are, you know, no kids, no unmarried get to be 40. And then the Zoomers start to get 30s and they're, you know, completely, you know, isolated from the opposite sex. Uh, that's going to create, that's the real social problems I worry about is that what's going to happen in 10 years. Cause people already complain about the war of the genders and stuff like that. And that stuff's only going to get worse because people are going to be more single, more miserable on that front and more hostile to the opposite uh, sex. And so that stuff, we, we're only seeing the beginnings of that. That's going to have a real major political impact in 10 years so uh buckle up for that so that's my thoughts on that topic it deserves a lot more scrutiny so we'll we'll return to that topic uh both the boomers getting divorced single boomers and single millennials and gen xers and what that will mean for society later on in future podcasts and now for the final question from jay who always loves to give questions to almost as much as new england refugees but not quite and he's asking about my thoughts on elites and you know my thought that a lot of the uh, old elite is getting pushed out uh, by people of color and women and and particularly by asians so he said um uh, something about the me too period he said that a lot of the he says that by 
position. I don't. I wouldn't really say this is my position, but he says that my position is a lot of Jews were driven out by white and Asian women during the Me Too period. Some ways there is. I mean, Harvey Weinstein's the one example, and a lot of I think the person who took over his role was a woman, um, Gentile woman, if I remember correctly. Uh, and a lot of these people are very woke. It's not like it's better or worse. It's just something different. Uh, but it's something to consider. So he's going off on that. I don't wouldn't say that's quite uh, my position, but we'll go to his questions. And he said, my first question is, that sounds plausible for the 20, for 2010 to 2018, but it seems like the feminist movement of that period has been completely displaced by trans issues. If women drove that movement in the teens, who is driving the trans movement? And is it having an impact on the composition elite like the feminist movement of the teens? Uh, one, no, the trans movement is not displacing feminism. Um, it's, it, that's more of just kind of sinking, buying a conservative argument is that outside of women's sports, like feminist movement is going very strong and most feminists are fine with trans. <laughs> they just don't like them using their bathrooms and, uh, are competing against them and pole vaulting or whatever. Um, so they're, uh, that's mainly their issues with that. And so the, tr Trans are not having a impact on elites at all. I mean, they have a major impact on the tech world, but they're really at the middle level. They are not an elite level. And if you look at the people who are at the elite level in culture making, uh, elite level of finance, elite level of business and government, it's not. There's not many trans people there. And even the ones who do get there, like that bald guy who was in uh, the Biden administration, are very low ranking and then are kicked out for being too uh, messed up to even work. So it's not having a, a composition, any impact on the composition elite. And it's also the trans movement is like it's gaining so much support because all these women are like, oh, they're persecuting them. They're so harmless. We need to defend them. But there's a there's a discomfort with them. As compared to gays that they, uh, you know, they didn't have any real discomfort about gays because one, gays were not um, trying to be like them. And they also, you know, they, they definitely feel that there's something off about trans, that, that they're trying to have share spaces with them that they don't want to share with uh, biological men. Uh, with gays, it was just like having a, a, a guy that they didn't have to worry about competing with to be their gay best friend. And they love that. So they were all like full for the gay movement. Trans movement, they're still for, but not quite to the extent that they were for gays because there's that level of awkwardness and discomfort there. But they're definitely not being replaced by it. Like, if you look at the elite composition, there's way more women there. They're still all diehard feminists. They're all, like, women power and stuff. And outside of, like, high school girls sports where there's, like, a really good male track tra track athlete it's really not impacting women that much and it's certainly not displacing them from the elite and well to, but the other thing that's also driving the trans movement is the gay lobby which the gay lobby has had so much success that they now view trans as an expression of them and that they have to secure trans rights to secure all other gay rights but there's still even that discomfort and awkwardness with the rest of the gay movement and trans stuff as there is with women but they still support it anyway uh even though they have like gays against groomers and stuff there is like some minority opposition towards it but not that much significant to it and then his second question was i was listening to the he was listening to another podcast and he was they were talking about the wasp ruling class in the early 20th century 
They say that the WASP ruling class was being challenged by some of the immigrant groups that had enclaves in many of the cities. The WASP wanted to break up these enclaves, so they supported the suffrage movement and the temperance movement. They used the prohibition laws as a pretext to go into the cities and break up these power centers. Your explanation of using wokeness to displace Jewish elites made me think of this. Do you agree with this take on the suffrage and temperance movements? Was it used by the WASP ruling class to push off the emerging immigrant elites? I would say it like wokeness is is used entirely to displace the other the pre-existing elites i just think that there's like fewer of those elites and that it's also being used to push women and you know black uh, non-whites into these roles that they wouldn't have otherwise had so it's more of an advancement role it's and it's different from how temperance is being used i don't know about the case with suffrage even though there were arguments made that like we need suffrage because we're giving we already give the right to vote to black men and immigrant men. So why not give it to native born white women to native to the real Native Americans? And that was an argument for that. And they'd also thought think that they would break up city machines by giving the right to vote to women. And then they'd vote for progressive politicians who would uh, different form of progressive from what it is today, but who would then break up the city machines and create good government so there was some of that but the temperance movement i mean prohibition was absolutely a nativist backlash against immigrants of uh, that time is that that was used as a way of the native born population saying we don't like these immigrants in their ways and we're going to enforce anglo-protestant ways on them so we're going to have prohibition and that's why the clan was a big supporter of prohibition because they thought it was a an expression of the anglo-protestant majority against the new immigrants against the Ellis Islanders. So they were definitely using that as a way to push off some of the emerging immigrant elites, but obviously it didn't work. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, the, those were arguments for it. And you could say that prohibition, the fact that prohibition didn't last, uh, you know, FDR, who was a, the leader of that new American coalition that included tons of immigrants, you know, one of the first things he did was eliminate prohibition. So that's that is signaling an importance that's saying, like, you're not going to keep these people down. The Anglo-Protestant ways are gone. We're going to have a new, more diverse America, more multicultural America that's not going to allow for temperance. So there is something there is something to be said with that. And so, yeah, I would say that they try to push off the immigrant elites, but it didn't really work. It was the same with the the. Uh, quotas the quota the jewish quotas at at these universities which you know and the quotas were just simply saying you can't be like 30 or 40 percent we're going to limit you to 15 percent but even then that they were still able to displace them then it's largely just due to that they weren't replicating themselves uh reproducing themselves in the way that current elites a lot of the jewish elites aren't reproducing themselves in the way that they were years and years ago like it's not the identity isn't as strong as it was 40 50 years ago a lot of their kids are mixed. A lot of their kids aren't, you know, bar mitzvahing. And even if they have kids, you know, they're having very few, far fewer kids. And so they're not reproducing themselves. And it was a lot in the case with the wasps too. And differences like the newer elites have a greater sense of their identity and a greater sense of exclusion. But they're really failing to do this because being called racist white men, even though they, they themselves may not see themselves as white, uh, this is an argument that non-whites and women are using effectively to push them out or allow for new, other roles to be there. They're not being pushed out entirely. They still have a lot of influence and power, 
but it is being reduced to a certain extent by newer groups that are trying to get into those levels. And the, and so similar problems were faced with that. Um, but I think a difference is that the woke, well, wokeness is being pushed by the, the old elites as well, but it's also being, <laughs> unlike the WASP, which were not trying to push things to displace themselves like liberal immigration laws and anything, they were trying to defend themselves explicitly um, but even the old elite is now given the tools for the new elite to have their place in the sun uh, and to displace the old elite. Uh, very different scenario. But it is interesting to think about. And I think that is largely, too, about suffrage and temperance. So that is it for that one question. Now we have to conclude with a non-question. But I was just realized that uh, today is the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. And I did not talk about 9-11 and all and it's and it's and people always you know i'm seeing a lot of people on twitter discuss it more and more uh i guess it's because it's a rage uh, or not rage but a certain age group which includes a lot of people who are non-zoomers really have deep and profound memories of it and they you know anytime that there was an anniversary of it through the 2000s and to the 2010s it was always like an important day it's like remember 9-11 and now that the country is moving on from remembering it in the same way that they did in the 2000s that there's like a you know demand and insistent that we keep remembering it in the same way that they would have in 2005 which is just not going to work like memories you know fade and pass on and that a lot of people just move on from caring about it, especially as younger generations who don't have a as strong of a memory as the older generations do get older, you know, becomes less uh, pertinent or less fresh in people's memories. So there's a lot of people, particularly like neocons and people who are around at that time or center left, center right, who are really tweeting heavily about it. But I think over time, it's it's eventually, you know, 9-11 is not going to have that day of uh, of the meaning it does. Like anytime you hear September 11th, that's immediately what it thinks of. But I think, and when they announce the day, it's like always September 11th, but eventually it'll come a day when you hear September 11th and only for the historically minded, will that come up as strong of a memory? And we're probably only 10 years away from that. It's the same with like December 7th. I mean, for historically minded, you know what that day means. Same with like June 6th. Um, and now January 6th, I guess. But it's, you know, some things, memories won't stay the same forever. And there's now like a whole generation of people who don't really have much memory of it. That's really what separates Zoomers from millennials. If, if you have a fresh memory of 9-11, you're a millennial. If you have no memory of 9-11, you're a Zoomer. And that's really the dividing line in the generation. Um, but I have a deep memory of it and uh, where it was, but where were you when the world stopped turning? But I've, we've had a lot of podcasts on it, but I just do find it interesting that we're moving past the significance of 9-11. I think it's kept it fresh in memory because you have to wonder is like the people who really want to keep it fresh in America's memory are people who want like America to be the world's policeman because like Bill Crystal. And these horrible, like, center-left liberals who suck off to Biden are talking about the day. And they really want to keep fresh in people's memory because they're like, this is when multicultural, multiracial America came together to invade Iraq. And it's like, um, I don't know if that's something to celebrate. Uh, eventually came to celebrate Iraq. Obviously, it took a year and a half for us to get there. But we eventually got there. I do think I this has been a very long podcast. It's almost two hours long. But I just had to get these points in there. 
And the final point I want to make is I think 9-11 trutherism is going to be more popular. It already has a degree of popularity because nearly 60% of the country believes that the government doesn't tell us everything about 9-11. Now, does that rate rise the level of trutherism? Uh, no. It'd have to be like, do you think that uh, 9-11 was an inside job? This was a very controversial opinion in the 2000s to have. And like the, the culprits behind this range from all over the place of who you think did it. It's choose your own adventure for who you think was responsible for 9-11 rather than 19 Muslims who are here due to our crappy immigration system and fears over racial profiling Muslims. You know, instead, we prefer to go with conspiracy theories because they're more fun as i've always talked about and so it's like choose your own adventure with who you think did 9-11 and it's far right far left uh, and even people in between get into it a 2019 poll this is one thing i found and i think there's it's gone higher especially since covid which that was a, another point i didn't bring up for the divorce thing but it's covid is I really, I love to get points later on, but now I've remembered this, is that COVID was a big driver in boomer divorces, which is so funny because everyone's predicting we're going to have a, a baby boom during COVID. We instead had a baby bus and mass divorces, which uh, like across the spectrum, even like anecdotally, like I knew a ton of people in my life who got divorced um, in COVID or the, or the immediate years after. So it's uh, uh, definitely the opposite of a baby boom. And we actually had a baby bus during COVID, but that aside, also another thing is COVID. People will spend a lot of time online and they got a lot more into conspiracy theories. And that's why there's more popularity conspiracy theories, I think, now is because a lot of people got into this stuff when, during their free time during COVID. But I think in 2019, the polls showed that 11% strongly believe 9-11 was an inside job. 12% strongly believe it. 15% say neither believe nor disbelieve, which... I don't know if that's like don't they have don't know, which is 7%, but only uh, combining somewhat believe and strongly disbelieve, it is only 54%. So, and don't know and neither believe nor disbelieve, you know, you have a almost four, you have 46% of the population that either believes it might be an inside job or maybe open to it. <laughs> and it's probably a higher figure now. And especially that strongly disbelieve element, I think that would be lower because it's primarily among an older generation where that's fresh in their memory. And they really felt that like saying 9-11 was an inside job was an attack on that memory. As time goes on, I think more people are, that, that real like powerful emotion around it is going to go away and it's going to be more, and, it's, and for younger generations that just, learn stuff from TikTok and everything. And like these videos love insisting that 9-11 was an inside job and other things because they watch something on YouTube or whatever or outside of YouTube. And so I think over time, it's going to be grow in popularity. It's going to be like the JFK assassination, which once that like the powerful memory of around it went away, it was easier for it to believe in JFK trutherism. And it's going to be the same with 9-11 trutherism. And whether that actually leads to question government, probably not. It's just something that people get into entertained by rather than like questioning the regime's legitimacy in the same way JFK trutherism is. Uh, but that is something interesting. It's going to be an interesting result when like 10 years from now, like probably mostly primarily among Republicans, 
is that you'll have like these cases where Vivek Ramaswamy has to imply that 9-11 was an inside job, but then he backtracks from it because he knows that a lot of his audience wants to hear that. And it's even stuff that like Tucker alludes to at times. But I could see in like 10 years that there's like a Republican candidate that's like openly running on 9-11 trutherism and he has a degree of popularity around that. Uh, mostly going to be among Republicans for some reason um, rather than Democrats. Democrats are much more believers in expert opinion than Republicans now. And 9-11 trutherism is, goes against um, expert opinion, even though the far left is really into 9-11 trutherism because they think that the evil white CIA did it. Um, but that's something to consider. But I've talked enough in this podcast. So that's just some thoughts I wanted to have about 9-11 because I knew the audience was going to want, like, hey, it's the 22nd anniversary. Shouldn't you say something? So I felt to say something. So this has been an almost two-hour-long podcast. And that is it. We're going to have a great IQ supplement and a great article later this week expanding on topics that I did not get to get to or fully flesh out in today's episode. And that's how like long it is. We didn't even get to talk about everything I wanted to talk about. So that's it for t- Highly Respected. And so until next time, stay respected. Stay respected.